Broadcasting from the UNMC College of Nursing, get ready for RN Huddle, the podcast dedicated to bringing hot topics for and by nurses to the table. Well, hello there and welcome to this edition of RN Huddle. This is your host, Heidi Keeler, faculty at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and I am so excited to share today's podcast with you. You know, in celebration of the Halloween season, we decided that we would put together a show for you that addresses the spooky and the scary side of nursing. So we're talking about bugs, we're talking about maggots, we're talking about other body parts that are not in their place. And, you know, these stories, they are ones that we like to talk about because of the scary nature of them, but you know, there's a lot to be learned from hearing these stories. So who better to talk about these scary situations but two of our very own Nebraska Medicine nurses. We've got Kaylin Knight, who is a nurse professional development specialist in our ED, and then we also have Amy Mead, who is the associate nurse manager in the emergency department here at Nebraska Medicine. So They're going to share some really scary stories and then give us all some advice as to how to survive these situations if they so happen to you. Kaylin, Amy? My name is Kaylin Knight. I am a nursing professional development specialist in the ER at Nebraska Medicine. I've been there for about seven years now. Started off as a patient care tech in the department and grew into a fellowship nurse, a staff nurse, and now the nurse educator. Um, I also have a little bit of a background in infectious disease working for the biocontainment unit. And my name is Amy Mead, and um, I am the associate nurse manager for the ED, and I've been in the ED, a part of this team, for about 14 years. And I'm really excited about this opportunity to come and talk about the variety of topics because I feel like emergency nursing, there's about a million different topics we can talk about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything from chest pain to anaphylaxis to trauma to pediatrics, we really kind of cover it all. So as Kaylin and I were talking, I think one of the first things that comes to mind this October is talking about maybe a little bit more of the creepy and crawly things that happen in the ED. Um, Those things that keep an ER nurse up at night, the things that give us ER nurse nightmares. What do you think, Kaylin? Oh, the bugs, bones, and blood. Those are not uncommon in our department. There are so many stories that we have regarding those items. One of the things in particular that I remember is a ground beetle in the ear. So I work in RAU quite a bit in our department. So that's a rapid assessment unit where we kind of see the more urgent care level of patients. People think bugs in ears don't happen, but it comes in quite a bit. One in particular, I had had a patient come in who uh, felt itching in their ear for the past few days. So I got the otoscope, I looked in, and the first thing I see is two little legs wiggling at me. Immediately just pulled back. I was like, okay, let me go get the doctor for that one. Well, what's in my ear? That's what the patient said. I'm like, well, let me just get the doctor. They got to take a look and then we'll go from there. So I went and got the doctor. The doctor came and confirmed, yep, you got a bug in your ear. So then we kind of went ahead with the treatment. Have you had bugs in your ear? You know, Kaylin, I've seen that before too. It's always kind of startling. You know, when somebody comes in with ear pain or maybe like they kind of tell you that they've had like a fluttering feeling in their ear and you grab the otoscope and you look in and you see what you were not expecting. It seems like bugs don't belong in ears, Mm -hmm. right? So Kaylin, tell me what you guys did about that situation. So bugs in ears have turned out to be one of my favorite things I do. Nothing's more satisfying than getting a bug out of an ear. So what a lot of people don't know is before you get the bug out, you have to make it paralyzed or try to kill it, which you can't squish it in an ear. Kaylin, how would you paralyze a bug? So lidocaine. 
You just inject some lidocaine, have the patient sit on their side, let it sit in there for about five minutes, kills the bug. Oh, that then is you're so not, smart. Then you're not fighting it. So um, the best way to do it is what I've been doing is I take a 16-gauge IV catheter. Just take the catheter off the needle, put, hook it up to a 60cc syringe of warm water. You don't want to use cold water because you're going to make the patient dizzy or you're going to make them vomit. So warm water. Oh, I've seen that before. Yeah, so yeah you don't want to do that. No. So just a gentle pressure pushing into the ear. Put the patient on their side and that bug just pops right out. Kaylin, that's a great point. Lidocaine is really good for paralyzing those bugs, but it also is a really effective pain control too. Those patients can have a lot of pain from the bug being in their ear. So using lidocaine would help to numb that pain as well. Yeah, people don't realize because, I mean, it may be this giant ground beetle that's completely obstructing it. That's just pressure in your ear. Then there's times where you look in an ear and what looks like a giant bug, you flush out and it's so tiny. It's like a little gnat. So it's still like they hear that buzzing. It's still causing pain. It's still causing discomfort. Absolutely. And a lot of people don't know, like, it's not always the creepy crawly. Sometimes people just have earwax and pack it in there. Um, Colace. Just inject it in the ear. Makes the earwax crumble up and fall right out. A little bit of colace. That's awesome. So, Kaylin, tell me, was your patient surprised when the bug came flowing out of the ear? Um, You'd think he would be, but he wasn't. But he did ask to keep it, put it in a UA cup, and he brought his friend home. Oh, (laughs) he brought his friend home. I don't know if I could handle that one, Kaylin. That's pretty unusual. So Kaylin, when I start thinking about some of the nightmares of the ER, I think a little bit more about, you know, our uh, Dracula's furry alter ego or the bat. And this time of year when the weather starts to get a little bit colder, these bats, they try to find their ways into homes. And believe it or not, they can find their way in from a hole about the size of a dime. And so it's not unusual this time of year that we see a lot of patients who come in who have been exposed to bats. According to the CDC, bats are the most dangerous rabies threat that we actually face in the U.S., more risky than dogs or, or feral cats and that sort of thing. Well, so you always you, hear it's raccoons, but no, it's actually bats. It's actually bats. Yeah, you should be concerned if you have a bat in your mm-hmm. home. And so bat bites are actually a relatively common occurrence for us in the ED. And, you know, while the incidence of human infection from rabies is actually really low in the U.S., If you were to contract the disease, it's actually a 99% fatality. And so for that, I don't want you to be scared because it's actually a disease that's 100% preventable. So when a patient comes into the ED, we really try to assess their risk factor. You know, was the bat inside their home? Were they asleep? Is there a potential that they were bit by the bat? And while sometimes animal control can capture and test these bats to see if they're rabbit or not, there's a large number of them that they can't ever capture. And so when a patient comes in, we need to make sure that we start that post-exposure prophylaxis well, pretty what if, quickly. What if you can't find a bite on them? Ah, that's not unusual either. Sometimes the, the bats, they have really, really small teeth, and they won't even feel it. They might not even be able to see it. But making sure that you treat the patient is really important to prevent them from getting rabies. It's 100% preventable. So when the patients come into the emergency department, the way that we treat them is an injection of rabies immunoglobulin. And we do that, actually, if we know where the site is, we'll inject it directly into the site. Otherwise, it's an intramuscular shot. And then after that, we follow that up with injections of the rabies vaccine. It's really important that you educate your patient that it's not a one and done. They need to come back for four additional follow-up visits to make sure they get the vaccine. The average incubation period for a rabies infection is somewhere between four and six weeks. But they've had case studies where it's anywhere between five days and one year. Symptoms start off kind of vague and nonspecific. Patients will have flu-like symptoms, headaches, nausea, kind of just a general malaise or not feeling very well, but then it rapidly progresses into encephalitis. And at that point, 
that's when the patients, uh, when there's that 99% fatality. Well, and that injection, that's weight-based, right? So one person may need 12 shots, another person may need 20 shots, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, thank you. (laughs) So I actually had a patient, now it wasn't a bat, but it was the rabies vaccination. I had a dog bite come in, and it was a pretty gnarly bite to the ankle. And it was a very big guy. I ended up giving 36 injections. Like, as you said, you have the immunoglobulin that's like bright neon pink that goes in one muscle. We just did that one in the deltoid. And we got like 17 of them around the dog bite. And then the rest of them, you just distribute to the rest of the muscles. I mean, but, how do you even find that many sites to give injections to? That poor guy, he was a pin, pin cushion. Well, and patients always say, you're joking. I don't need that many shots. I'm like, unfortunately, this is the one time I'm not Can joking. You have- can you imagine what they must think when we come in with a tray full of shots? Oh, seriously. And all those needles, syringes. I'm like, those aren't all for me, are they? Talk about nightmare. So, Kaylin, um, moving on from bats, tell me about some of the creepy crawly things that you've seen in the ER. Well, another common one that we see is lice. It's lice. Kids are going back to school. Parents need to know how to take care of lice. Um, I actually had one patient recently Six feet away, I walk into triage, and I can see a scalp moving, and I knew I had a problem. Oh, that makes me itch right now, just thinking about it. And so, Kaylin, tell me more. People get really intimidated and grossed out by lice. It is, and it's an easier fix. It's easier than bed bugs. When you have a patient with lice, you just got to get them cleaned up. Um, so, a lot of times, the docs will just prescribe a shampoo or a lotion to put in the patient's hair. For this patient in particular, we just put on PPE, gown, gloves, hair, mask, boots, all of that, um, and brought them to the shower. We first just rinse their hair put in the shampoo, and we always follow the manufacturer instructions that come in the box for the type of shampoo you're using. This one in particular, we put it on, let it sit for 10 minutes, rinse their hair, and then you just use a fine tooth comb. Just comb them out. Comb out what you can see, comb out the eggs, get everything out. Um, We gave them some discharge instructions on what to look out for if you're still having itching, if you're still having bugs. You're going to have to retreat in a week, and the patients always leave with the prescription for that. Um, The biggest thing is just remembering, wash your clothes, any hats, all of that, you have to be aware. Keep everything in mind that that person was using within the last week. That all needs washed. Wash their pillows, their bed sheets, clothing, everything. You know, and I think, Kaylin, that's a good point. You know, just like you need to protect yourself, you need to really educate that patient on protecting the rest of the family as well. Because this is definitely something that you can share and share amongst your entire family. So yeah. well, and there's a lot make of... sure that you're not reinfecting. Yeah, and there's a lot of remedies because it's, it's not working for all lice. Um, new prescriptions out there, they're getting more resistant to it. Other things people do is they try to suffocate by putting mayonnaise or peanut butter in their hair. Um, people use tea tree oil. They think that kind of helps get rid of them. So sometimes if what you're doing isn't working, you got to look out there to see what else there is. Just make sure you talk to your doctor first. Great advice, Kaylin. I think I'm itching already, but um, <laughs> I appreciate that instruction. So, Kaylin, this time of year when um, Halloween comes about, I always like those costumes that have, you know, nails sticking out and bolts and, you know, and and like the fake blood and all that stuff. But something that I think I was surprised about working in the ED that I never expected to see as many times as I have is nails impaled places they should not be. Oh, it's the greatest. You know, and it's like, you just never think that's going to happen. But Kaylin, I've seen nails in hands, nails in fingers. I've seen nails in feet. I've even seen nails in skulls Mm -hmm. before. And so... You know, when you think about that, that creates kind of an interesting problem for us in the emergency department because things like that aren't supposed to be in hands and feet. Mm-hmm. So, Kaylin, I could think about one one case in particular where we had a guy and he came from a construction site and he was using a nail gun and was going kind of fast. I mean, he was really cranking along doing his job and he got to the point where he got to his hand and n- nail went straight through his hand into the board. And I was surprised at this guy because when he came in, his buddies actually, his coworkers, 
cut the board on either side and he came in and his hand was still attached to the board. You know, and I remember walking in with a doctor and looking at him and like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do to get this guy's hand free of this board? I've also had patients where they've had nails impaled through the bottom of their foot. And that creates kind of an interesting situation too. And I would tell you, Kaylin, that the management for these is always very individualized because, you know, first and foremost, you want to make sure that you're controlling the pain for the patient Mm -hmm. because this is a very painful thing for them to experience and creates a lot of anxiety too. So first, like reassuring the patient, making sure that you get them pain controlled first. Some of these situations, we've got a lot of bags of tools and tricks in the emergency department, and sometimes we can get those out and we can free, you know, their hand or their foot from that nail. But there are other times where the patient might need some sedation. We might need to do some procedural sedation for the patient and even times where the patient needs to go to the operating room. But when we talk about a situation where the patient has a nail that's come up through the bottom of the shoe and into their foot and it's impaled that way, you have to consider things like they have a high rate for infection with these. It can lead to osteomyelitis. It can lead to other infections and other problems that could even cause them to lose their foot or cause sepsis. So these patients, you need to be considering things like um, assessing to see if there's a retained foreign body. So taking them and having an x-ray done, um, making sure that you're doing a really thorough job irrigating and washing out that wound. And sometimes that has to happen in surgery. And then other situations, making sure that these patients have a high rate of pseudomonas infections. So you're giving antibiotics. And then, of course, making sure they have their tetanus shot. Life-saving tetanus. Life-saving tetanus, (laughs) Kaylin. So, Kaylin, that makes me think of, you know, some other things. I can think of a, a situation that I've seen in the emergency department that you have that's probably my least favorite creepy and crawly of all things. Maggots. Maggots. Kaylin, tell me about maggots. Oh, my goodness. Maggots. So. One story I got from a fellow nurse, I actually wasn't here for this one, but it's still one of my favorite ones. A patient came in um, complaining of foot pain, took off their sock, and there is a toenail perpendicular to the great toe with dozens of maggots between the great toe and the nail. And they're just popping out. And obviously, we don't think maggots should be in the toe. I mean, I would not want them in my toe. I don't think maggots should be anywhere, Kaylin, honestly. Funny thing, maggot debridement therapy is a thing. So it back, is not. Back People the, really use maggots. I don't know if they do anymore because we have antibiotics. So who needs creepy crawlies when we have this wonderful medication? I, I would prefer to stay that with can go oral or IV. But in the 1920s, I actually read an article about two researchers who took 143 patients, did um, maggot debridement therapy prior to surgery on half of them, and following surgery, all of the patients that got maggot debridement therapy did not get an infection. A third of the patients that did not get maggot therapy did get infection. Oh, no kidding. Maggots save lives. Wow. So that maggot was already doing its job. It was was. doing our work for us. That's what you're saying. Right? Yeah. It's amazing. So, Caitlin, I had a patient like that once. Almost exact same story. Took the shoe off, and I saw this thing moving on their foot. And when I took a little bit of a closer look, I noticed that it was actually maggots. Hundreds of them. They were like literally like a wave just moving in and over and beyond each other. I was so startled by that. And, you know, surprisingly enough, the patient wasn't experiencing any pain at all. Well, and, you know, they don't have that pain because the maggots are just eating that dead necrotic tissue. If it's already dead, the patient's not going to feel anything. Modern day medicine, we just go in and we irrigate all of that dead tissue out, either at the bedside or if it's a really significant wound in the operating room. But back then, like, people don't always know those maggots are there because it's just eating what's dead. So patients aren't going to know. You know, and in terms of, like, wounds, wounds can become infected and you can become septic from wounds really, really quickly. So, you know, for this patient, actually, that maggot was helping him to prevent getting infection from that dead necrotic tissue. Exactly. 
So Kaylin, uh, any other things that keep you up at night when you think about like your career as an emergency nurse, the unexpected things that give you nightmares? Well, it never fails. The first thing people want to ask you when you're an ER nurse is, what's the craziest thing you've seen? Mm-hmm. And as you know, it's not an easy question to answer anymore because we're immune. We see everything. Everything's the norm in the ER. Um, but one thing that people always want to hear, so I'll share today, is organs that aren't inside the body like they're supposed blood to be. Blood and guts. Blood and guts. Blood and so guts. I have actually had a patient before that just came in in a wheelchair screaming, said his stomach was hurting, and we lifted up his hoodie and an intestine fell onto his lap. It happens. As long as the organ's not injured, there's no obvious bleeding, bleeding's controlled. A lot of time, you expect all this guts to be, literally guts to be blood, clots, all that to be on their lap. Usually it's just the organ, just sitting there. Um, so obviously an organ outside the body is a surgical emergency, but don't stuff it back in there. You got to be careful with an organ. People always assume, just put it back in and hold pressure. No, just let it there. If it's not bleeding, leave it as is. A lot of times surgeons are just going to want to rinse it, assess it for any injury, then they're going to bring them to the OR. Um, in the acute care setting, like being the ER, our biggest thing is we want to put a sterile gauze covered with sterile saline on top of it, and then just put an occlusive dressing on top just to make sure it doesn't get injured more until the patient can make it to OR. Those injuries, while they sound like they're gory, they're not always gory. A lot of time, you just got to protect what is there until they can get to the operating room. Do you have any stories like that? You know, Kaylin, I can agree with you. I think that's something that the first time I ever saw that, it was really startling to me. And I think working at a trauma center, it's not unusual that you'll see a patient who's had some form of an injury, whether it's a car accident or, you know, or a bicycle accident, a motorcycle accident, where they have an evisceration of their bowels. And knowing what to do in those situations is really, really important. So making sure that you're not overreacting and shoving it back in and creating a situation for that patient that's worse than what they were already experiencing. Well, and people don't realize how easy those types of things can happen. Like, obviously, stab wounds, they might pop an organ yeah. out. You never know. But, like, bike handles, people don't realize you hit a car, you hit a curb just right, you fly into your bike handles and you're riding a bike. That's enough power just to cause an evisceration. You have to be aware of that. And even if it's not open, you don't know what's happening on the inside. If you're in a bike accident, you hit a tree, your stomach's really hurting you the next day, you may have punctured something. You have to get checked out. I've had patients who have had retroperitoneal bleeds from barely hitting a tree when they're on their bike. So it's always, the safest thing to do is always get checked out when you're having pain with those types of injuries because you don't actually know what's happening. You know, Kaylin, um, this time of year also, you know, with Halloween around the corner, it really, you know, my kids are really excited about going out to trick-or-treat. And it always makes me think of safety. So calling back to like keeping kids safe and when working at a trauma center, we see a whole lot of things where kids get injured and there's really like pretty easy things that you can do to prevent things like that from happening. So what are some of your thoughts on just keeping kids safe this time of year? Looking both ways when you cross the street. That's the number. It starts with the basics, the things you learn in elementary. Look Mm -hmm. both ways. The amount of pedestrian versus cars that we see, even in the summer, can skyrocket on Halloween because kids are just running across the street back and forth to get candy from different houses. You got to watch your kids and you got to make sure your kids know the rules before you go out on Halloween night. Yeah, Kaylin, I think that's a great point. Kids are so impulsive. They get so super excited about going to the next house for candy and it's a competition and it's a race. But making sure as a parent, you always have that heightened awareness because they're going to run off and they're going to run quickly and they might not stop and look for those cars. Well, and make sure you pay attention to what costume your kid has on. Can they see? Do they have good peripheral vision? Do they know where to look? Those are the type of things people don't think about. Oh, we have this awesome costume. There's this big cardboard box with this stuff painted on it. That looks awesome. Is your child safe? Pay attention to that. Yeah, it looks like it's a great idea until they fall downstairs because they can't see the stairs are walking down. Yeah, Kaylin, that's an awesome point. 
So this stuff might seem rare, but this is why we choose ER nursing. Like this stuff doesn't make us nauseous. We enjoy this stuff. This is not uncommon. This is our Monday. Like we see this stuff so often in the ED, you would think that it would make us um, feel a little bit sick or like it feel a little bit nauseous. But, you know, honestly, it becomes an everyday occurrence and I, I don't. It doesn't even really bother me anymore. No, I flush lice out of here and then I go get a sandwich. It's let's our go day. get breakfast. Yeah, let's do it right now. So we hope you guys enjoyed. I hope you guys have a happy and safe Halloween. Just avoid those bugs, bones, and blood. And and if not, Kaylin, you know, we're always open. Well, thank you so much to Kaylin and Amy for bringing those really spooky stories to us. And, you know, yikes. In learning how to handle these situations, you've taken a little bit of the scare factor out of it for us. So hopefully you've learned a little bit today in this edition. And uh, and if these situations walk through your door, you'll be a little bit better prepared to handle them. And that's all we have for today's episode of RN Huddle. Hope to see you back here next time. Thank you for listening to RN Huddle. To stay connected, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at UNMC CNE. Or check out unmc.edu slash CNE for more program information.